In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. Welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Vanessa, here as we equip you with practical tools to live your faith in our modern world of today. And this week, we bring back a familiar face here on the Catholic Toolbox, Dr. Robert Haddad. Welcome back. Yeah, thank you, George. Thanks for having me again. Happy Easter, etc. And happy Easter to you too. And uh, it's very exciting. I mean, we've spoken about so many topics here in the Catholic Toolbox with you. Um, you you've been a great source of knowledge for us here, many of our listeners. Uh, but we never had a chance to really, uh, as I noticed when we were speaking the other week, uh, to speak about your personal story, your, your conversion story. And uh, I'm sure you, you produced a lot of content, but we haven't seen too much out there about Robert, her dad and, the story behind Robert Haddad. And uh, today we'll be taking three practical tools out of Robert Haddad's personal conversion story. So uh, why don't you start us off <laughs> in any way that you like or any fashion that you like? Yeah, happy to do that. I have given my testimony, so to speak, but piecemeal. Like if you look at certain videos I got on YouTube, like for example, um, from Billy Graham to Catholicism is my most popular um video and that's got like over 140,000 views and I start with my story um well I'll, I'll, I'll give you the very beginning like I'm born into a Maronite Catholic family at a time here in southwest Sydney living in Bankstown then Punchbowl where there was no Maronite churches so I'm baptized in St Felix Bankstown a Roman Catholic church and for my first years, I have very clear memories of going to St. Jerome's Punch Bowl and St. John Vianney Greenacre. So this is late 60s, very early 70s. Um, I had no sense of being Maronite. I had a sense of being Catholic. I think I've always believed in God. And I know that when I was five years of age, I had the thought of becoming a priest. And the rationale that I was, you know, in in my mind at the time was that to become a priest would be the best way for me to get to heaven. That's what I was thinking at the age of five. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, as you grow up, and I was growing up in a public school environment, I had no Catholic education. I went to Greenacre Infants, Greenacre Primary, Punchbowl Boys, then Sydney Law School. So all my education up until 
you know, my early 20s was all secular, non-religious whatsoever. So anyway, I went to Lebanon at the age of eight. And I was At that time, I was only baptized. Yeah. Uh, mass attendance was very sporadic, depending on when my parents went. Frequenting sacraments was even less than sporadic. I went to Lebanon in 72, and I did my first Holy Communion in Lebanon. Sadly, in hindsight, I had no preparation for it. Uh, it was a very goodwill gesture on behalf of my mother and her sister. And my, my auntie, Sister Vincent, is a Vincentian nun in her late 80s now. And she's been magnificent and heroic in her vocation, running an orphanage school in the mountains of Lebanon for over 60 years. And uh, I did my first Holy Communion with under the um, auspices of my auntie. And, the, this, and in the context of the school that she was running, an orphanage school, I, did I have any sense of what I was doing, what I was receiving? The only sense I had was that I was doing something holy, religious, and getting holy bread. Um, after that, coming back to Australia. Holy bread. Yeah, holy bread. Well, that was it. I mean, that's how I was thinking as an eight year I heard that too as a, as a child, the holy bread. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, from then on, from 72 onwards, um, it was the same old, same old. Uh, I remember what input I was getting religiously was catechists coming to Greenacre Primary. Uh, and this is 1973, I remember very well. And I, there were volunteers coming to the school and the volunteer specifically was Sister Patrick of Motor Mission. And she was an old style nun, old in age, old in practice she was wearing her white habit from head to toe and i actually hated these classes i remember to as a catholic we had to withdraw from science class and go down to the bottom of the playground to a demountable where we would have this this catechetical session once a week so maybe six or seven of us in the room with this old nun and i actually remember saying to myself i wish i was anglican so i didn't have to do this um because i love science and i didn't want to be i didn't want to be different because i was already ostracized and for a, the differential of race i mean when i came back from lebanon racism was very very bad and i discovered through my racist friends that i was now a wog and i was made to feel that and I didn't want to identify as Lebanese. And I didn't want to identify as anything different than the, my, those around me. So I just wanted to be good old secular Robert, Aussie Robert, doing what everyone else was doing. Religiously, um, in Punchbowl Boys, when I went there in the high school, I was going to scripture classes as well. I remember clearly year, year eight, we had a Mrs. Pippin. Now she's passed on. God rest her soul. She came from the parish of St. Jerome's Punchbowl. And she'd come to Punchbowl Boys. And, you know, she dropped a few good seeds in me as a 13-year-old. She would... Um, I remember once we had a lesson where she... On the blackboard, she put up a picture of Jesus. And on the other side, a picture of Leif Garrett. Now, Leif Garrett was a pop rock star then, you know, and his most popular song at that time was Surfing USA. And she said, 
to the class in 20 years from now everyone will still remember who Jesus is and no one will remember who Leif Garrett is or was okay and she proved to be correct you can still go to YouTube now and see Leif Garrett videos um and I was just plugging along. I, I, I didn't start praying until I was 13. My father went to Lebanon uh, on a business trip and it was the, the height of the civil war. So I was worried about my father's safety. And in response, I got the inspiration and began praying a few prayers every night before I fell asleep. So that was my state around the age of 13. Um, I was very intense about my studies. I gave my studies priority over religion and over mass attendance. And the big change happened when I was 15. I had a sense of Catholic, non-Catholic rivalry from a few incidents relating to my father's side of the family. I remember very early on in the late 60s, there'll be a man coming to our shop dressed in black and black hat and my, he was trying to convince my father something about religion. And I realized later on he was a Jehovah's Witness. And I remember my dad trying to fob him off. He was laughing and trying to push him away. Not physically, but, you know, I'm not interested type of push away. And this man was probably sent by one of my uncles, my father's youngest brother, who'd become a Jehovah's Witness in the mid-60s. Mm -hmm. yeah. I remember once another woman came into the shop and she seemed to be very angry and she left angry. And my dad said to me, um, they exchanged words, this old woman and my dad. And my dad said to me, oh, that woman hates Catholics. So I got a, I didn't know why. And um, I realized later on, she was probably one of those Sydney Anglican evangelical types. Uh, I remember when Pope Paul VI came to Australia in 1971. Was it 71 or 70? I think November 70. And I remember my older brother telling me that there was someone in his class who hated the Pope. And I found that very strange as a six-year-old. Why would anyone want to hate the Pope? I mean, like the holy man. And that's what I was thinking at the age of six. Um, now, fast forward again to 15, and I remember it was early May 79. And I had a friend of mine named Stephen. Now, I'd known Stephen for many years back into primary school at Green Acre Primary. Now we're together, Punchbowl Boys. And I knew Stephen quite well. We knew each other quite well. I wouldn't say we were best of friends, but Stephen came up to me one day and said, would you like to come and hear uh, someone from America, a preacher, talking about Jesus and I was open to that and um, I thought yeah that's a good idea I mean I believe in Jesus not that I was practicing my faith I mean I wasn't confirmed I wasn't going to regular mass I wasn't receiving the holy communion I wasn't going to the sacrament of reconciliation or penance um, and I was only praying a, few, a one or two minutes a day at the end of each day and I had all my problems as a teenager would have okay. um, in one way or another and Anyway, I remember before I went, took up this offer to go hear this American preacher that I watched something on TV about this preacher named Billy Graham. Yeah. And he was in Singapore. And he was preaching to this large crowd in an auditorium. And he did what was, I later realized, he did the altar call. 
And I remember people coming out of their seats and going down to commit themselves to Jesus Christ. And when I was watching this, I thought, this is a good thing. Yeah, it's good that these people are going down and uh, the more the better. I didn't realize at the time that that was a type of remote preparation for what would happen to me. Yeah. I was a believer in Jesus. I wasn't so conscious about Catholic, anti-Catholic, Catholic, Protestant controversy. I took up the offer for my friend, Stephen, and that night we traveled in a minibus from St. So from the church, the Baptist church, Punchbowl Baptist Church in Arthur Street, Punchbowl, with other parishioners from that church and with two other school friends of mine. So I went with Stephen, I went with Joseph, and I went with Andrew. There was four of us from Year 10 Punchbowl boys going down to Randwick Race Course that night. Yeah. Were, they was, hmm? Were they Lebanese? Uh, Punchbowl oh, no, Joseph was Croatian and Andrew was just straight and straight Aussie, if, if I may say that. Okay. So uh, Andrew would have been Anglican background. Joseph would have been Catholic background. Yep. yep. Um, now, that night, it was probably late May. I, I, I estimate it was May 30th or May 31 that year. And I, and I, there I am in this, in this grandstand here at Randwick Racecourse. There was probably about 20,000 people that night. It was rainy. And... Um, when Billy Graham was preaching, I remember one thing he was saying was about idolatry. And I began to get worried when he said idolatry, because I began to think about Mary and statues of Mary and begin that my first understandings of religious controversy vis-a-vis -vis Catholics and Protestants. And anyway, when the call came to come down and commit yourself to Jesus Christ, I went down. So did my friends, Andrew and Joseph. And I was happy to do what I did. I believed in what I was doing. I was already a believer in Jesus Christ. And I wanted to be a better believer in Jesus Christ. I had no plans whatsoever of changing religion, of abandoning the Catholic faith and going elsewhere. In fact, my father warned me not to because of the experience with his younger brother and the Jehovah's Witnesses. I just wanted to be a better follower of Jesus Christ. I went home, we got in the minibus, back to Punchbowl, and we walked together, Stephen, myself, Joseph, and Andrew. And there was something about that night, that walk, because we all felt the same buzz or joy. And we all shared that amongst us. And I got home, it would have been 11 p.m. I went to sleep that night, and the next day I woke up, I felt strange. You commit yourself radically religiously. The next day you wake up, it's not surprising. You feel a little bit strange, like what happened last night. And I knew this was life-changing. Anyway, I knew that they would there would be follow-up. Because when we went down and committed ourselves, we gave our names and addresses. And I was worried about the follow-up. And it was about two weeks later, some gentleman came. Mm -hmm to the door of my house and he began he, he offered me some pamphlets which I took and I just left it at that I didn't show any other desire for conversation or anything else he was probably a little bit surprised do you want to tell our listeners what is the follow-up uh, is it what I'm thinking that you know when you give your number they always follow up or you, you 
They have your yeah. details. <laughs> Is that what yeah? It's called the nurturing. For them, they called it the nurturing phase. Yeah. Where someone's committed to Jesus Christ, but they know that these are green offshoots that could be crushed or could wilt. So they have follow-up and they want to try and connect that person to a particular church. It could be Baptist, it could be Sydney Anakin, it could be Presbyterian, it could be whatever. Okay. Um, and you know, I didn't want that, but I kept friendly with Stephen at school. Mm-hmm. And my life had changed. It was the first really big step up in my life, religiously. And so I was believing more intensely, praying more intensely, but I still had 101 other issues. Um, I wanted to be a better Catholic. And, but I was still friends with Stephen, who was a very, very devout Baptist. He, was bringing, he brings his Bible to school every day in his bag and he's always talking religion whatever whatever as well as being a good sportsman and cricket and other sports you know etc i got involved with the inter-school christian fellowship group at punchball boys mm-hmm. which yeah. met every lunchtime once a week every week once a once a week and there i'll be doing the bible studies And I began to realize, hey, you know, these people are are, are good with the Bible. They know their Bible. They know Jesus. They have, you know, a level of authenticity. They have a level of consistency. And they are are, are really, in in a sense, true believers. When I looked around at the Catholics I associated with, they weren't much chop, so to speak. (laughs) They seemed to be not really fervent not knowing the Bible, not talking religion regularly, not believing, uh, leading good lives. I mean, I was hanging around Baptists who didn't smoke, who didn't get drunk, who didn't like to dance, who, who rejected rock music. And I was sympathetic to all that. But I didn't see that among Catholics. And nothing's now, changed, Robert. Nothing's changed. <laughs> well... I, I I would later on come to know real Catholics yeah. and come to know about the lives of the saints. And, you know, Protestant piety in comparison to the Catholic sainthood, well, there's not real, there's not much of a real comparison there. I, I saw a new, new ways of following Jesus, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ with great fervor and intensity. And I saw that in reading the lives of the saints. Yeah. I saw greater you know witness greater example greater sacrifice in the lives of celibate religious and priests and etc which doesn't exist in protestantism yeah yeah we'll go into that a little bit later yeah yeah and anyway i um but then when i used to go to the school christian fellowship i began to hear the anti-catholic comments and the you know and the anti and the Protestant theology and interpretation of scripture, which began to worry me because I had no real formation in Catholicism. I knew things about the Catholic faith, like the Pope, like the Mass, like the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, about Mary's perpetual virginity. I knew about statues. I knew about, through a friend of mine, Our Lady of Fatima and Marian apparitions. I knew about, I think, if I said already, the rosary. Um, I knew these things. I knew that the, the 
Baptists and Anglicans or the evangelicals I was associating with were highly hostile to these. You know, I began to also get exposed to Protestant material on television, the televangelists. And there was also a lot of, and this is the late 70s and early 80s, says there's a lot of political trauma in the world. America's in decline. It lost the Vietnam War. You had, you had Nixon and Watergate. You had, you know, the great economic crises of the oil price shocks of 1974, 79. You had the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. You had the Iran-Iraq war. You had America embroiled in the hostage crisis in Iran. America's on the decline. The Soviet Union's on the rise. Communism is spreading here and there. It seemed like, and listening to my Baptist friends, the end times. Catholics weren't talking about the end times. But it looked like the end times. And, you know, I began to hear and read literature like the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey and then the Christadelphian pamphlet that I came across, War with Russia is Inevitable and the Third World War and the Soviet Union's invasion of Turkey and Israel, according to the book of Ezekiel, all that, etc. And um, so I'm getting a lot of Protestant influences and very weak to very to virtually no Catholic input. And then when I'm hearing Catholic critiques of Catholic beliefs, they really troubled me. Um, my friend Stephen would reject infant baptism. I couldn't defend it from the Bible. My friend Stephen would say that the Pope is the Antichrist. There's a computer in Belgium called the the beast, that's a Catholic country. It's recording the names of everyone in the world. That's what the Pope is going to use to establish his world domination and the mark of the beast, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Catholics pray to the Pope. Catholics pray to Mary and worship Mary. Catholics engage in idolatry by doing that and praying to the saints and having all these statues in their churches. And the commandments are clear about that. You know, thou shalt not have any graven image, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the Eucharist was just his, you know, a symbol that it remained bread and wine. I attended Baptist services to remain in the Punchbowl Baptist cricket team. It's a memorial meal only. I didn't know about Zwinglian theology or Lutheran theology or Calvinist theology or whatever. I didn't know about, I just knew the Catholics believed that and they believed something else and I couldn't defend the Catholic position or really anything. And one real low moment for me was 1980 and I'm in an inter-school Christian fellowship Bible study and I'm a bit bored and I'm flicking through the Bible I had on my in front of me, a 1974 version of the good news for modern man. And I come across Matthew 13 and I come across those verses 54 onwards, which name the brothers of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. James yeah. Joseph Judenstein. Yeah. And I had a Catholic friend named Elias who was giving me input about Mary and Marian devotions and Our Lady of Fatima. So I knew about Catholic beliefs about Mary being a perpetual virgin. And then when I saw this, the brothers of Jesus and their names, it, it just like I was a kick in the stomach. Yeah. And I really thought the Catholic Church is wrong. I mean, here are the brothers of Jesus and they're named what how can the catholic church explain this i remained silent 
because I wanted an explanation. I just couldn't find one. I didn't have one. Um, my response was to abandon praying the Hail Mary. No more Marian prayers. Yeah. Right? I just say the Our Father, glory be, whatever, but no Marian prayers, no rosaries. I didn't want any Marian thing in my life. It was too dangerous for me. Could risk my salvation, you know. So, and I'd continue on with the Interschool Christian Fellowship through 1980, 81, year 11, year 12. And then when I started law school in 1982, I'm looking for something Catholic. But I couldn't find anything worth much. There was no Catholic chaplain. There was a Catholic chaplaincy, but it was very there was poor. No very quick. Yeah, there was no chaplaincy building. Or... No. no, there was a chaplaincy hut, but the chaplain was probably a priest. And I wasn't on main campus. I was at Sydney Law School in the, in the CBD. And they had no Catholic society, but it was an evangelical union. And I would go to that. Mm -hmm. okay. And I would hear their talks. And, and it was just the same old, same old. He's a Catholic who wants to remain Catholic but can't defend the Catholic faith, is really insecure about all these beliefs, doesn't know, wants to believe them but can't give 100% assent. And I uh, come across another person at law school named Andrew Jones. Mm -hmm. Andrew was a Sydney Anglican and was a very, very nice fellow. Like Stephen, the Baptist, Stephen was a very, very nice fellow genuine friends genuinely good people and they're, they're anti-catholic but not in a ferocious angry manner but just in a dialogical manner conversational manner and um i was waiting for anything i wanted something catholic and the newman society began at sydney law school in 83 in my second year i said oh good good excellent finally and i'll be able to get all the answers i need well, they had some good members and they had some good talks, but it still wasn't what I wanted or what I needed. I wasn't getting the answers. I had an apologetical nature about myself and didn't realise that it was an apologetical nature. You know, I wanted Catholic answers to Protestant objections. Where are they? All right. So it seems that you held on, even though there was a lot of... Um lot of influence from the protestant side in your life beginning with members of your family joining the jehovah's witnesses joining dialogues going um going to billy graham and and you not having the arguments at the time it it seems as if you still held on to that catholic faith because you knew yeah. you didn't want to change was that an nostalgia right. was that a nostalgia or was that what it was, your parents, what it wasn't. you knew there was some kind of answer. Down I, this is what I was thinking. This was my primitive thinking. The Catholic Church is so big and it's so old. It must have answers. Where <laughs> are they? What are they? They must have answers to these objections. I mean, you know, I, I, I was cluey enough to know that Protestantism was really just of the last 500 years and there were different types of Protestant. I knew that and that they can't all be right, okay? So what are the Catholic responses to what I'm hearing? Okay, fast forward again a few years. It's 1985. I'm in final year law school. But I was beginning to develop a condition relating to obsessions and it was obsessional study. It was really, without knowing it at the time, I had OCD. 
and it was in effect in my study habits. And so I began to demand of myself with all my law school notes, I had to memorize them word for word before I had the confidence to go into any exam. And if I couldn't do that in time, I'll get depressed, I'll have depression, I'll drop out of law school. And I did that in 85, I did that in 86. And when my father passed away, God rest his soul, in late 88, I dropped out a third time. I wasn't at law school in 87, I just wanted to get away from it. But in 85, this calamity that occurred to me six weeks from finishing final year exams, this calamity would, would stay with me throughout 86, 87, 88, and half of 89. In that period, my whole life would change. There was one fellow I knew at law school named Fabian Chow. I've reacquainted with him in recent times. He's a businessman in, in Papua New Guinea. He's still a faithful Catholic. He's the, the new Papua New Guinean ambassador or to, the, to Singapore. And he has very good relations with the Cardinal up there in Papua New Guinea, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Anyway, he, I'm going to be very frank here, and I say this with great charity. Fabian wanted me to be associated with his Catholic group. But I found him too Marian and, and a little bit, this marrying thing too much, too weird and keep me away. But because I collapsed at law school, I had all this free time up on my hands. What was I supposed to do? He finally convinced me to come over to his place and get associated with his group of Catholics. And his group of Catholics were very traditionalist, um, very old Latin mass, very pre-Vatican II, um, and rather hostile to elements of Vatican II and hostile to the Novus Ordo. And there was, there was the indult of 84, but we didn't yet have the Ecclesia Day decree of 88, and we certainly didn't have, you know, what Pope Benedict will bring in later on. We basically were in a situation like we are now under Pope Francis. So the Latin mass community was very small, very marginalised and considered, if not schismatic, semi-schismatic, crypto, or practically schismatic anyway but meeting even though i was now associating with fabian in his you know circle of catholics and i found them overly marian and weird in certain ways yeah. Yeah. Uh, i was getting a lot of benefit being with them um they had a library so i'd be taking books off the shelf and one book i found in february 86 was a book called The Question Box by Father Conway. Paulus Press, New York, around 18, late 1880s. And this was an original. It was literally falling apart. The pages were brown. The, the cover was broken off. The first few pages likewise broken off. And I picked up this book and I flicked through it. And I said, saw that all oh, these questions and substantial answers. And these questions were very relevant to me. These are the type of questions I was being confronted with for years. And now I'm seeing answers literally in my hands. I, I don't even think I asked Fabian permission for the book. I just took it home. I, it was 447 pages. I read it in two days. I haven't read a book that fast in my life. At the moment, I average five pages a day or three to five pages a day when I'm reading. Yeah. And um, that book was it for me. 
that book was my lightning flash. That was, you know, I often compare it to the story of St. Paul's conversion. St. Paul on the road to Damascus was knocked off the horse. I was on a road to nowhere and I was knocked onto the horse. You know, I saw every question that my friends, Stephen, Andrew, and any other Protestant would ask, and I saw the answers. And I saw the answers based on scripture, based on reason, and based on a group of men called the church fathers, oh, wow. which I never knew, never heard of them before. And what struck me, and I need to mention this, because this is the this is the crucial point here. When I used to be associated with my friend Stephen, he would say once or twice that the Baptist church was the restoration of early Christianity, original Christianity from the first three centuries, that Catholicism, Catholicism was really some type of corruption, a hybrid, Christian-pagan hybrid, post-Constantine. This is the usual refrain you get from many Protestants, right, from the really based on an ignorance of history, particularly church history. Yeah. What I yeah. saw, particularly on those questions relating to the Eucharist, was quotes from St. Ignatius of Antioch around 110 AD, St. Polycarp of Smyrna, mid-2nd century, Tertullian, late-2nd century, early-3rd century, Oregon, 3rd century, and others, Justin Martyr, mid-2nd century. I saw all these quotes showing very clearly that their belief in the Eucharist, St. Irenaeus as well of Leon, late 2nd century, that they really believed the Eucharist was the body and blood of Christ. They really believed, I'm you know, summarizing here, without going quoting these quotes, multiple quotes in detail, that the bread and wine through the prayer of the presider, the president, the presbyter, became the body and blood of Christ. It was no longer, as Justin Martyr, St. Justin Martyr would say, common bread or common drink. It become, it was changed and become the body and blood of Christ. I saw this clearly, emphatically, without any doubt, from the second century church fathers. And that was a stark contradiction to what the Baptists believed, namely that it was, it was bread, it remained bread, it was just a memorial meal. It was wine, it remained wine, it was just a memorial meal. And that shattered in my mind this idea that was planted in my mind by Stephen innocently that the Baptist church was a restoration of the first three centuries. Stephen never mentioned any of these men. And he couldn't because he had another pillar of belief that would preclude reliance upon these men in their writings, namely Sola Scriptura. These men in their writings are outside of Scripture. So they're not authoritative. They can't be relied upon. But you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't claim historically that you're the restoration of the early church of the first three centuries and then be in total ignorance or deny all the main figures and their writings from that same period. You can't have it both ways. Yeah, well, it's like saying if Sola Scriptura was true, then let's see what people were believing in the early church. Let's see what... The, surely there were true Christians. Where are the writings? Where Where's the... Uh, you know, and and I, I could trust these men, St. Ignatius and Polycarp, because they had connections to the apostles. 
exactly. Historically, they were ordained by St. Peter. St. Ignatius was ordained by St. Peter, right? And and Polycarp knew St. John. So did St. Ignatius of Antioch, knew St. John as well. I couldn't believe that suddenly these men who were saints and martyrs, who were sub-apostolic under the apostles, suddenly were in grievous error and idolatry. And so, and so I embraced that. And that from that moment on, after reading that book, the light bulb was turned on. And not only with respect to the Eucharist, but every other Catholic belief. What, what fell into place for me was that if the Catholic Church was right about the Eucharist, it was right about the Mass, it was right about the priesthood, it was right about all the other sacraments, everything fell into place for me. And I would trust the Catholic Church with everything else it taught about Mary or the papacy or whatever, whatever. And so after reading Question Box, I was voracious in my desire to buy and read every Catholic apologetics work I could get my hands on. And this is at the same time we began to have that new springtime of apologetics in the United States. So, you know, I'm reading the old books, you know, the Question Box and then The Faith of Our Fathers by Cardinal Gibbons. That was the second book I, I read. Not knowing that you know, there were men coming on board in America like Dr. Scott Hahn and others who start a new wave of, you know, and uh, one phase after another of great Catholic apologetical works. And I'll buy many of those books in the decades that followed. Um, and so that basically, and but the issue that I have to, the point I have to mention here is that I became very, anti-Protestant. It's great to be anti-Protestant, but in a very aggressive, you know, nasty way without realizing it. I so 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 you really became defensive, just like a good Lebanese person. <laughs> yeah, defensive and offensive. Because my it's just my temperament. I mean I, I'm still got a lot to learn about everything. Yeah. A lot to learn about all the Catholic arguments, but the, the manner of argumentation, and that would take a long time before I realised, hey, I'm not doing it the right way. I mean, to be aggressive, to be combative, to, to seek to win arguments, to defeat the other person, um, is not really the main game of apologetics. Of course, we're here to defeat arguments, but we're, win we're here to win souls. And I only would realize this 15 years later when I was then appointed by then Archbishop George Pell, later Cardinal Pell, to, to run the chaplaincy at University of Sydney, back to my old law school and the main campus. And he actually said, and what encouraged me greatly, he actually said, I want apologetics to be part of the work on campus. That excited me. But then he said, I want you to get on with the Anglicans. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll keep, I'll bite my lip about that. Most Anglicans on campus, Sydney Anglicans, were, were conversational, polite, pleasant people. You get one or two who are narky and nasty, but overall, when they wanted to have debates about belief and practice, it was done in a conversational, friendly manner. And I came to realise this is what is necessary. The groundwork is that you need to make friends, real friends. And then once you, you are in a friendship relationship, then people are willing to listen to each other. Mm -hmm. No name calling, 
no no abuse no shouting no um you know speaking over each other no um you know no triumphalism genuine conversation dialogue exchange of views and opinions and arguments done in respectful manner that's when conversions began to happen for 15 years and whatever i had done in apologetics privately or publicly no conversions yeah. maybe i was relying upon myself my own arguments but my style was offensive and yeah. only I later really on, relate to that because when i came back to the faith it was through this protestant attack and then learning your faith building up apologetics you 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 build up you know the arguments you're, you're ready to fight back with the arguments and take them down and it, it, it's quite fun you know when you know the, the answers to things and you know the scripture verses and you can you can sling arguments and and, and essentially win but you haven't really won souls <laughs> yeah yeah well I, I won all the arguments i didn't win any souls so what was the value of what i was doing i was probably repelling people further away from catholicism and not realizing it at the time you know i remember driving home you know after some of these encounters cheering and pumping my fist oh yeah we defeated them they had no arguments you know i ripped all their arguments whatever but you know no, nothing was gained by way of of you know bringing people closer to the fullness of the truth yeah um and I still have to bite my lip and I still have to control my temperament. And, you know, when whenever I get a hostile comment posting on my YouTube channel, you know, I have to just don't respond straight away. Just bite my lip, stay calm, come back a few hours later and just write up a polite, respectful, but thorough, solid Catholic response. And you know, and be polite and show that, you know, it's we are human beings all in good faith, yeah, in error, but still in good faith. Let's talk through the issues. And, um, you know, it's far more fruitful, far more fruitful in the medium and long term. Um, I will never convert to anyone who's loud and aggressive and abusive and insulting. So why should they convert if I'm the same way? Exactly. I mean, well, first Peter three fifteen says, Sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in hearts, always be ready to give a defense or an apologia, but with meekness, kindness, and respect. Yeah. And oh, it's good at the first bit. Always be prepared to give a reasonable reasoned account for the hope that is in you or an explanation for the hope that is in you. Great. But I forgot the second part. Do it always do it with gentleness and reverence. So <laughs> New apologetics actually isn't new. New apologetics is a rediscovery of the most old apologetics. The Judeo-Christian apologetics, the injunction of St. Peter and 1 Peter 3, 15, etc., is, is the original and the best when it comes to advice on Catholic apologetics. Be ready, be thorough, be passionate, be enthusiastic, but gentleness and reverence. And if people don't accept the argument, in the end, you just leave them to God. That's it. I mean, it's, it's such a remarkable story. I mean, when we when you really think about it, uh, your upbringing and that Protestant presence, to, to what extent did the time that you spent with your Protestant friends engaging in their 
in their uh, preaching, Billy Graham, going to their churches. How much did that impact on your faith in general? If it wasn't for that being in the picture, we took that out of the picture. What would your faith have looked like if you didn't? Well, look, if I interpret your question correctly, what was what were the good things I got from my association with these evangelicals? One, the the importance of scripture and knowing scripture, but knowing it now I came to realize it, knowing it with Catholic lenses. It's far deeper, far greater dimensional, right? Um, also, lives of, of authenticity, integrity, holiness. And again, uh, from a proper Catholic perspective, we would build on that when you know the lives of the saints, okay? What else did I get? Um, scripture, also the need to know history, Many people make many claims. The vast majority of them are baseless or false, mm -hmm. especially from a historical viewpoint. The Catholic Church is the only church that can trace that has a 2,000-year history. Okay? The Orthodox churches are also apostolic, but sadly, they're, they're for whatever reason, they're not accepting the, the office you know, the papal office founded by Christ at the moment. Though there's plenty of evidence in the first millennium, they did. I'm reading a very good book on the moment about that, the papacy by Eric Yabara, and a brilliant book, excellent book. But that's what, they're the three things I got if from Protestantism. Scripture, a lives of holiness, and the need to know church history from the very beginning that church history didn't begin and end with the book of acts of the apostles right church history began before the acts of the apostles was written and it certainly continued a lot long afterwards okay and we we need to know those early centuries we need to know church fathers we need to know the the great the history relating to the great councils of the church the theological, Trinitarian, Christological controversies, how the church was operating in those early centuries, long before there was any Protestantism, long before. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting when you see a trend like this where Catholics grow up as proto-Catholics, live their faith, they get attacked, we get on the defensive, you know, in my situation, it was quite similar to yours, you know, being attacked by Protestants and, and wanting to learn the arguments and defend yourself. It's sort of as if we come back to the faith, but, uh, by, by answering objections. So uh, mm -hmm. I, I'm personally grateful for, um, the, the challenges that I've faced, uh, by Protestants for posing good questions. And not knowing them, because that's what moved me to inquire and study my faith better. And I just wanted to know what, what then happened after. Let's let's move into so you're at the University of Sydney running the chaplaincy. Uh, was it the Newman Society at the time, or was no, it? It was a Catholic Society, but there was also the Catholic Society of St Peter. Eventually, um, 
you'd have one Catholic society again, but run by people who are Orthodox Catholics and with a supported by a chaplaincy staffed by Orthodox Catholics. And this was the great work of Cardinal Pell and continuing under the, you know, the, the, the time of Archbishop Anthony Fisher. Um, for me, I carried apologetics into my schoolwork. And when I started teaching at St. Charles College in 1990, 1991, my lessons were all apologetics. <laughs> uh, I saw too many Catholics leaving the Catholic Church because they don't know their Catholic faith, they don't know Scripture, and they're not leading good holy lives. And that's what attracts them out of Catholicism into Protestantism, whatever form that is, because they weren't really Catholic in the first place. There's this great void, this emptiness, they're not leading spiritual lives when what they know of Catholicism is very little, very poor. What they see of good Catholics is very little, very poor. And um, so they get attracted. That's why they leave. Um, and so I felt this and whatever I can do as a teacher, I've got to be focused on these students to get them to lead moral lives, faithful lives, observant lives, regular mass attendance, sacraments, prayer, Know your scripture and know your arguments to defend the Catholic faith when you're going to be challenged one day. And those two years for a young were the basis, yeah, the basis of my book, Defend the Faith. Defend the Faith, which is my bestseller in this country, has its origins in those lessons, those first 20 lessons that I prepared for year seven and eight in those early years, in the early 90s. And I highly recommend for anybody listening here today, the Fan the Faith by Dr. Robert Haddad is is an absolute marvel piece. I mean, you've now updated it with many more arguments uh, recently. Uh, you can access it from Perusia Media. It's available in Catholic bookstores all over the country and also uh, online, I believe, through Amazon. But Defend the Faith is is a real. It's helped me personally, especially when I came back to my faith. I began to pick up your. I picked up your book, Defend the Faith. And also Michael Sheehan's Apologetics. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, I should mention, in all fairness, I had the original Apologetics and Catholic Doctrine by Archbishop Michael Sheehan, the mm -hmm. one previous to the rewrite by Father Peter Joseph. Yes, it yes. was that book which was the main basis for my lessons that I prepared in 1990 at St. Okay. And again, those lessons would be developed further and further um, in the years to come and, and the full circle is that the same father peter joseph who did revision of apologetics and catholic doctrine by archbishop michael sheehan would then take my book and clean it up uh, he found at least three thousand necessary changes to be humble <laughs> and that's absolutely tremendous but this is what young people like you know instead of these sort of these lessons where you go in and you talk about Jesus, a nice story, a few nice lessons, structuring it based on apologetics, where there's an objection and here's the answer. There's something about it that was different. As a young person in year nine, having started, found out, you know, found a Tim Staples CD, went back to my, after being attacked by Protestants on many arguments, I had no answers. I started and I started ordering books and CDs and started learning the arguments. There's something there about learning off objections and apologetics. What do you think it is, Dr. Robert? Well, 
that's the nature of, of our of us as human beings with an intellect we need to we have an innate desire in within ourselves to know and understand to ask questions to seek answers and when we're challenged with questions we want answers now I'll, now this is a segue to another point i want to emphasize the damage we've done to our souls in the church the the second vatican council was very clear that we needed apologetics i've got in a different presentation where i quote the second vatican council uh, the decree on the laity i think it's paragraph six and other parts of the of the second vatican council which makes it clear that apologetics was necessary and and had to remain necessary in the life of the church but what we saw in the post-conciliar period was an evaporation of apologetics at all levels in the seminary in the universities in the high schools we jettisoned it okay we went to ecumenism and interfaith relations and all that and there's a place for those things, but in my opinion, very limited in the end. You still, the injunction from Jesus Christ to go baptize all nations and for everyone to be in under one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one shepherd remains. So there's an imperative on all Christians and all Catholics to still engage in whatever way we can in the form of gentle, loving apologetics to as an act of charity towards others to bring them to the realization of what the fullness of truth is that that exists in the catholic faith the catholic church and that they should once they realize that embrace that and receive the not only the fullness of truth but the fullness of the means of salvation but we got rid of apologetics we became the only apologetics many engaged in was an apologetics against apologetics and that was a, that's the catastrophe that one of the catastrophes that befell the church from the late 60s onwards. And whatever we can do to restore apologetics in the new form, as John Paul II said in his uh, ad limina address to the bishops of Western Canada in 1999, this point that I make about winning souls rather than arguments comes from him. Okay, and that that's an injunction that remains. And the more we can do to advance apologetics, to try and revive it at any level is important and necessary. I mean, it's, I remember after I had my reversion back to the faith, I'd watch a lot of debates between Father Mitch Pacwa and um, uh, what was his name? Uh, Dr. Walter Meyer. And yeah, yeah. Debates and Dr. James White who was a Protestant uh, with Father Mitch Pacwa and other Catholic theologians. And this is the sort of stuff that really is relevant to young people. I mean, it, it's, all, it's all about these days being relevant to young people. I think people want answers why they're going to remain Catholic and live a certain lifestyle and follow Jesus Christ. If there's no answers, it's quite simple. But let's go straight into the three practical tools. Mm. I think your life is a great example. And I have many similarities uh, with your story uh, on that Protestant trajectory and coming back through apologetics. Let's look at the current state of the church today and many faithful. Uh, we have less than 10%, around 10% of Catholics who go to Mass in Australia. What's How can we use elements of your experience in, in your conversion as three practical tools where we can learn something from your life and, and your mm. story 
and apply it to bringing back young people and other people back to the faith today. I think that's what we can say very practical tools. The first point, I do have three points. The first point is what I remind what I said earlier. But one, to be an effective apologist, you have to have a lead a life of integrity. Gradually get to know your scriptures. You don't have to know it verbatim, verse by verse, but be familiar generally and know church history. That's point one. Okay. Right? Okay. Point point two is that we can't be a master of we can't be a jack of all trades and master of none. So eventually, if if you've got look, anyone who wants to be an apologist, this is point two, really. Everyone who wants to be an apologist can be an apologist. When do you start? Any time. Do you have to know scripture, theology, philosophy, history before you start? Absolutely not. The second practical point is that if you've got the desire, you've got the will, you're ready to start. Yes, you'll make mistakes. I always make mistakes. But the only people who make mistakes are those who are trying to do something. Okay? So point one, life of integrity. Know your scripture. Know your church history. Point two, do something. Do anything. Get started. Don't wait to start. In time, point three, become a specialist in a certain area. We've been talking about Catholic Protestant apologetics tonight. But my goodness, there's Catholic Jewish apologetics, Catholic Islamic apologetics, Catholic atheist apologetics, Catholic apologetics as against the sexual revolution and all its variants, right? Atheist and new atheism, okay? There's so many fields. Now, you can't be a master of all of them. To be a jack of all trades, I tend to be a little bit of a jack of all trades. You know, I do what I'm asked to do. I prepare presentations according to what I'm asked to do. But, you know, we do need experts in the knowing the Jewish arguments against Jesus of Nazareth and his claims to be the Messiah. We do have to have experts relating to Islamic attacks on Christianity. We do need experts, of course, in the area of Protestantism. Uh, that still remains, particularly the fundamentalism, the Pentecostalism, and all those, the evangelical uh, movements that are running riot in nominally Catholic countries. Okay. And we, we do need to have a really high, so-called high-tech apologetics to deal with all the, the new wave of, of the atheist and new atheist arguments. Uh, and then you have to be very au fait with good Catholic philosophy in, in that area as well. And we've got plenty of good pro-life fighters out there. And that's a form of apologetics as well. So become a specialist in a particular area. Believe in yourself. Don't listen to the naysayers. Don't listen to the doubters. Sadly, I see on occasions that there are people who pour scorn, you know, Australia, unfortunately, we have a tall poppy syndrome and we like to pull down people. We like, we have Nazareth syndrome as well. We don't believe that 
you know, we can have profits from our own home. We love to go listen and 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 go to hear American speakers, but we we really downgrade and have a, a contempt for homegrown Aussie speakers. That's very wrong. Sometimes I think that's motivated by just raw envy or jealousy, and that's what we have to resist. We we need local Catholic apologists, and the more the better. We can never have enough. The tra 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 tragedy in this country is that you can probably list the active Catholic apologists in this country, Catholic ones, on no more than two hands. And that's a disaster. Uh, and so if you, anyone watching this video, if you have any inkling, any desire to be some type of apologist, go for it. Don't hold back. Get out there. Start learning. Start watching. Start listening. Start reading. Start even writing. You know, and if you know my my YouTube channel, my work is tiny. It's a couple of grains of sand on the beach, but at least I know I'm doing something rather than nothing. I mean, if we and can I do know. If we can reach a handful of people. I mean, and change people's lives. We're doing our work. I mean, that's and. Um... So, I mean, Encouraged by what you do, I'm encouraged by what you know Perugia Media does. I'm encouraged by Lumen Verum. I'm in, I'm encouraged by um, you know Christian Lives Matter and all that you know um, those movements. What they oppose in the public square, um, you know these are ordinary people uh, doing at times extraordinary things. That's how God works. Um, the fact that we're all Lebanese is a bit of a concern. Where are the Anglo-Saxon Celtic apologetics apologists in this country? Uh, once someone said apologetics is a Leb thing. I mean, that's rather racist, but it's also <laughs> tragic. It's not a Leb thing. It's a Christian thing. It's a Catholic thing. The best apologists in America are not less. We like to fight. We're, we're, we're crusaders, I think. It's in our blood. <laughs> well, we cannot allow ourselves. We've got to keep that fervor, that fire. We can't allow ourselves to become, go down that road of being anemic. You know, well, the, the left wing side of the church really is stale and sterile and faithless and fruitless and anemic. We don't want to go down that road. Okay, They're dying off. But we, you know, apologetics is is the blood boiling in a nice way. You know, it, you know, you're alive as a Catholic. Your blood is circulating. You got the fervor, the passion, the enthusiasm. Yeah. It's funny, the Look, there's yeah. as a young person, there was nothing like going to uh, a guardian's talk or one of your talks at Lumen Verum or or going to Catholic Adult Education Center. <laughs> at the time, being in year 10, learning arguments, listing them down, memorizing the answers and going and calling that Jehovah's Witness uh, that that came to my door and inviting him back for a coffee at the front front of my house and and and, and going into it, you know, and just, yeah, I think with meekness, kindness and respect, you know, maintaining a friendship, but, you know, really giving them the arguments, you know, showing them how we can prove Jesus is God. We can prove <laughs> the papacy from scripture, tradition, the magisterium. I think this really engages young people. 
you know, there's nothing like what 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 has been your experience, uh, Robert, when you teach apologetics as opposed to a simple class in a lecture style. Well, most people are, most people are really keen. Uh, when in you know um, that's what I've found and um, another thing I want to say is in my journey from a person who had no answers I've come to realize hey the Catholic Church has all the answers the Catholic Church has every answer for every question for every problem for every obstacle I know that with absolute certainty now okay we must make that oh that aware to Catholics and non-Catholics. I mean, there's nothing more shocking to a sincere Protestant to realize, hey, the Catholic Church has answers and they're very convincing answers. And I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. That's a shock. That shakes their world. The conversion stories of all the great Catholic apologists who were born and raised as Protestants, they all go through the same experience they were shocked when they realized that this idol worshiping babylonian cult actually has the answers mm -hmm. actually is bible based actually has a history going back to jesus christ actually you know can they read prove all or they read it's the early church. i mean and think okay well let's read what the early church is doing oh there's bishops there's councils there's oh absolutely there's the mass there's you know, all these decrees, you know, these people, where did they get their Bible from? Where did they get their Christology from? They got it from the Catholic Church. They weren't there. Now, I don't want to start gloating and be triumphalistic here, but it's a historical reality. They weren't there. When I, just reading at the moment, you know, all the... The, the third and fourth century writers in support of the primacy of the Bishop of Rome and the universal jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome. And you see that this was a church with priests, de deacons, priests, bishops, metropolitans. Now, That's not Calvin of the 16th century. That's not Presbyterianism. Calvin and Presbyterianism is a really human tradition that's contrary to the word of God and contrary to the historical foundation and nature of the Catholic Church. And we, we just read the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch and you, and you know why Calvin thought that they were fraudulent letters, because they contradict his model of church. Because he talks about deacons, priests, and he talks about bishops, and he talks about the Eucharist. Right? And that's why the, we need to get this out there and make people realize, yes, yeah, sure, you're sincere. God bless you, but you're not in the fullness of truth. And if you were, you'll be even happier and more blessed. And that's our act of charity towards them. I mean, it's, it's, it's just absolutely tremendous. We have a lot of work to do, but I think tonight what we can take from these three practical tools is to take action um learn apologetics get out there just uh, and learn the arguments get out there and go back to work have that conversation have that lunch conversation apologetics doesn't have to be that you have to become a speaker it it, it means you take the arguments and you have that conversation with that relative uh, at the easter barbecue 
and you engage with that Jehovah's Witness, you engage with different people. We do it out of love to bring people to Christ. And mm. it's just amazing. Where can you recommend Dr. Robert Haddad uh, for your listeners, some resources or people to follow you? Well, conveniently in Australia, Perusia Media has as a one-stop shop for great resources and apologetics from local and international writers um, and all the videos, um, you know, all resources of electronic nature. You go to their, you can go to their um, website. You can go to their YouTube channel. You can go to my YouTube channel. Um, it fluctuates in views, but you know, it's it's there. It's an available public resource. Perusia Media. I don't want to confuse people too much. So just look up Perusia. Look at their apologetics range. There's more than enough there. But as a final point, and I want to really emphasize this, doesn't matter how much you know in every field, if you don't lead that life of holiness, of authenticity, your apologetics will fail from the very beginning. It won't get off the launch pad. It will crash and burn. What people want to see more than anything else is authenticity and integrity, that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, as well as knowing your stuff. Knowing your stuff alone is never sufficient. Thank you so much for being with me here today, uh, Dr. Robert Hoday. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear your story and uh, drawing three practical tools from this so we can actually take good action and uh, further change and bring souls to Christ. So thank you for being with me here on the Catholic Toolbox Show. And thank you for having me. God bless and you know, keep up the great work. You know, they're all small pieces of work, but all together, it, it, it's, it's, it's all part of the bigger puzzle, all part of the bigger church endeavor. God bless you. If you want to access the podcast, you can go to The Catholic Toolbox, wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. So go to your podcast platform, find The Catholic Toolbox. Just a quick announcement. I'll be releasing The Art of Practical Catholicism, book number two, uh, this coming July 20th. So more to say on that in the coming weeks, but The Art of Practical Catholicism, number two, will be coming out this year. So Don't forget to tune in next week. Thank you for tuning into the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh. Until next week, God bless. Take care and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.